Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 14. I find this kind of uh, providential that this morning at the beginning of the year, we come to literally the most demanding and difficult text in all of Luke. And if you've been here a while, you know that's saying a lot. And uh, everything's going to be downhill from this text. So you can look forward to that. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Luke tells us of a book by Annie Dillard entitled An Exposition, Expedition to the Pole. The book is about what is commonly referred to as the Franklin Expedition. The year was 1845 when Sir John Franklin and 138 other officers sailed from England in three different three-masted ships. And their goal was to find a northwest passage across the Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They traveled in these three ships, which had auxiliary steam engines, but only 12 days of coal. The reason for that is that they needed to make room for a 1,200-volume library in each of the ships, an organ, china for fine meals, and custom-made sterling silverware to eat with. Even though the voyage was to be two to three years in length, they didn't take any warm clothing, only their officers' apparel. They left England with great fanfare. Two months later, a British whaling captain had reported seeing them in Lancaster Sound. He was the last person that had ever seen the voyagers alive. Years passed and people wondered what happened to the Franklin expedition. Eskimos told of stories long past of strange men in thin blue suits pushing wooden boats across the ice. Some had seen them um, pushing and pulling these boats and some 35 were seen trying to drag a boat across the frozen starvation cove. At another cove called Terror Cove, 30 men were found dead in a tent that they had set up on the ice. At Simpson Strait, three, the three masts of a ship were seen protruding out of the ice, but the ship was totally engulfed in ice. Two were found frozen to death in a small boat which had been drugged some 65 miles over the frozen wasteland. The bodies of those found in the tent and in the boat were clutching custom-made silverware. Many miles south, an officer was found all by himself. He wore an officer's uniform, nice little silk tassels hanging, hanging from the shoulder, gold buttons, a black silk neckerchief around his neck, and some tea. The Franklin Expedition perished. Because they had not prepared. They had not considered the cost. 
They went into this expedition as if it were going to be a pleasure cruise. As if they were going to be sitting around in their masted ships, dining in fine food and not encountering any real serious weather. They would just sail through this passage that they didn't even know existed and come out on the other side, having read all the 1,200 volumes in their library. But in the end, it cost them their lives because they didn't count the cost. They didn't prepare. They didn't consider what would happen to them on the journey. Let's just say that you are with several thousand people, a lot of people, far more that are in here this morning by 10 or 20 maybe. You're on a dirt road somewhere in Perea. Perea is the area that is east of the Jordan River, across from Jericho, on the other side of the Dead Sea, that area there, Perea. You're following Jesus with these thousands of people in a pretty dry, hot, arid place. Maybe you live in Perea and you heard that Jesus was coming, so you went to meet him. Maybe you followed him over the Jordan because you heard he was there. You've surely heard about his miracles. Maybe you've witnessed his miracles. Maybe you've even followed him before for a few days. And now here you are again, following him again with this great multitude. You wonder if Jesus is the Messiah. It seems that he could be, but the religious leaders say, no, you're amazed at his miracles. You're enthralled by his teaching. You're entertained by his arguments with the religious leaders, but you don't know for sure. And you just wonder and you watch and you follow along with the multitude. And suddenly, as you're going along the road from where you're at to who knows where, Jesus stops and everybody then realizes Jesus is stopping. Jesus turns and everybody hushes. They're quiet because they want to see what he's going to say and hear it clearly. So everybody gets very still and very quiet. And then Jesus says this, follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if salt, even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the newer pile. we thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
In this text, Jesus gives you five proofs of discipleship that one must possess if they are going to be Jesus's disciple and not perish in hell. The first, hate your relatives or perish. Look at verse 25. Now, large crowds are going along with him. Jesus, again, is in Perea. He's moving from one village to the next. The crowd doesn't know where he's going. He's just going. They're following. They want to see a miracle. They want to see some amazing thing, hear amazing teaching, watch an amazing argument, whatever. The multitude in our texts are like the multitude in churches all around the world today. People who come into buildings where the church meets. Yet they come for the wrong reasons. They come because... Maybe they want people to think they're Christians. There's a lot of peer pressure to be a Christian in some circles, and you don't want to be thought out of as being a pagan, so you hang around the church in order for people to think that you're a Christian. Uh, Maybe you come to church because you want to drum up business, and that's really the only reason you put up with the sermons, you put up with the handshaking and all that. You, You just want to make money off of people. Maybe you come because your parents make you come and you don't really want to come, but they make you come. And you know that uh, in your heart that if you had it your way, you'd stay home and watch TV or play video games. Or maybe you come because you're looking for a husband or maybe you come because you're looking for a wife. Or maybe you enjoy the preaching and you enjoy the learning, but not the applying. Look in the middle of verse 25. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, this phrase comes to me means get saved, is born again, becomes a true Christian, a true disciple. You know, we talk, we use the same phraseology. We say, hey, did you hear that so-and-so came to Christ? What are we saying? Have you heard that they came to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? That's what we're saying. That's what Jesus means here. If anyone comes to me, that is, if anyone comes to me to be saved from the consequences of their sin. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, Jesus often made shocking statements in order to get people to listen and think. And this is surely one of them. The word hate means to detest To intensely dislike. And think about what Jesus is saying here. Hate your father and mother. Husband, wife, brother, sister, children. Are you sure? Or you cannot be my disciple? Well, in certain contexts like this one, the word hate can mean this. It it can mean to give preference to above all others. See, whenever you're... You have to choose between one person and another person. In that sense, you have to submit to this one and despise that one. Show hatred towards them. That's what Jesus is saying. He is saying, you need to give me preference above all others. In that way, showing hatred towards them by not submitting to them, but submitting to me. Jesus must come first. This what it means. Jesus says in Luke 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he would be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You must choose who you will give preface to. Will it be Christ or your wife or your children or a friend? Who is it going to be? Only one person can be king, master, and Lord of your life. Jesus says it must be him. 
In First Chronicles 28, verse 9, David is on his deathbed. He's about ready to die. So he calls Solomon in, and he wants to give Solomon some key little bits of knowledge before he passes into eternity. So these are the words of a dying man to his son who is now going to be king. And this is what he tells Solomon in First Chronicles 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. And serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, you he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Are you going to give me preference with a whole heart and a willing mind or not? He says, if you... Seek me, you're going to find me. If you reject me, you will be forsaken forever. Same exact thing. The question is, does that describe you? Does that describe you? Are there any relationships that are getting in the way between you and Jesus? Jesus mentions all of our closest relationships here, doesn't he? And, you know, you've, you've heard, you know, the... The phrase, and I've seen it in action, blood is thicker than water. I've seen people who just basically say, I don't care what they've done. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God wants them to do. I am not going to turn against my blood relations. Of course, they never state it that way, but that's exactly what they mean. I will not confront them. I will not obey the scriptures towards them. I will not do it. That is to side with others and put them first before Jesus. Jesus says, if you do that, you can't be my disciple. He said it this way in Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, just mothers, just, you know, look into the little cherubic face of your child. Look to that wife that you love and cherish as Christ loves the church. Look to your husband. Look to your children. Look to your friends. Whatever the closest, most dearest relationships you have. Look at them and ask yourself, would I follow Christ or them if I had to choose? Well, you have to choose. And you have made a choice. The question is, what is it? Are you... Following Jesus, giving preference to Jesus above all others or not. Your unbelieving spouse, your parents, your boss, your friend doesn't want you to do some Christian fanatical thing. You know, it's God's will. They don't want you to do it. Who are you going to cave into? Who are you going to submit to Jesus or them? Jesus says, if anyone is unwilling to hate all others in order to follow me, look at the end of verse 26. He cannot be my disciple. He cannot be a true Christian. He cannot be somebody I've saved by grace. He is lost. He is perishing. And what person do you suppose contends for dominance of your life more than any other person? Think about that. Who is it? That person you look at in the mirror. We are our worst enemies. That's why Jesus says the end of verse 26, yes, even his own life. The Greek literally reads, even his own soul. You have to be willing to hate your own soul or you cannot be Christ's 
disciple. William Hendrickson in his commentary on Luke writes, quote, when an alien wishes to become a citizen of the United States of America, he must renounce allegiance to his native land and take an oath of loyalty to the country of his choice. This does not mean that he cannot continue to think highly of the nation to which he has said farewell, but it does mean that from now on he must serve the land of the free and the home of the brave. Even far more absolutely and unconditionally must be the loyalty which citizens of the kingdom of God sustain towards their heavenly country and its Lord of Lords and King of Kings. If a person is unwilling to tender that unconditional devotion, then, says Jesus, he cannot be my disciple, end quote. We, like Eve, like to be our own gods. You remember? Hey, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Okay, I'll take it. And we like to be our own God. I mean, when you think about it, that is really at the core of everything we do that is against God. It's being our own God. Why do people commit immorality? Because they don't want to submit to Christ's standards of purity. Why is it that somebody would engage in in evil business practices? Because they don't want Christ ruling their life and business. Why do people worry? Because they don't believe Christ is sovereign and will take care of them. Why is it that people are unwilling to sacrifice to read the scriptures and study the scriptures and to get knowledgeable about the word of God because they don't want to submit to Christ and have him ruling their life and telling them what to do? That all comes down to idolatry, self-worship. You remember what happened when Saul was told by Samuel that the Lord wanted him to totally wipe out um, Amalek and to destroy the, the king and all the plunder, take nothing, just wipe them out. And you remember what happened? Saul then spares some. So Samuel comes and confronts him and says, Saul, why didn't you obey the Lord? He says, I did obey the Lord. And in the background, he this <laughs> moo. And Saul, what is, what's that I hear? Those animals. He goes, oh, those. Well, we, we did spare those to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And what about the king? And then Samuel says this in 1 Samuel 15, 23. Listen to what he says. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Did you see that? Did you see to reject the word of the Lord is to practice divination and idolatry. It's not that Saul was worshiping some wooden statue or stone idol or some pagan deity. He merely refused to submit to God. And in refusing to submit to God, he was committing self-worship. Idolatry. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 3, 5. Listen to this. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In other words, if you're involved in immorality, if you're impure, if you have evil passions and evil lusts that you're seeking to fulfill, if you're greedy, all of that are just expressions of self-worship, 
idolatry. It's a refusal to let Jesus be Lord of your life. Jesus requires that he be Lord and he be worshiped and he be the master of your will and tensions and all that is about you. And if you are unwilling to have him be this way in your life, you cannot be his disciple, he says. Secondly, you need to die to self or perish. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross. Now, the people who heard this, they had they knew what a cross was. It was a crude instrument of execution. We, we, we have pretty distorted views of what crosses are. We, you know, we think they're jewelry. You know, they're earrings and things you put around your neck um, as little tokens of, you know, I'm a Christian. But to them, it was a hideous form of execution that made the dying process prolonged and sustained. So it would be the most painful for the longest amount of time. Um, we see pictures of those crosses where we're way up. Jesus is way up above the ground. Usually the people were crucified. Their feet were just a foot above the ground. They were low. People just were right there. Just salvation was just all around them. Just the, the closeness of having stability, the closeness to the ground, the, the nails, the slow bleeding, the slow starvation, the slow suffocation. I mean, it was like hideous. So when Jesus says, whoever does not carry his own cross, there surely was a a gasp in that great multitude. Carry his own cross. You mean die? March to your own death? You hear somebody say, well, we all have our crosses to bear, you know, a contentious wife or stubborn, mean-spirited husband or unreliable car or mother-in-law. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is stating in our text in a negative way what he stated positively in Luke chapter 9 verse 23 where he says, If anyone wishes to come to me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The the phrase literally means you need to die to yourself, march to the death of yourself. So that I can be Lord of you, not you, which means you may have to say no to your hobby sometimes or all the time. You may have to say no to sleeping in sometimes or all the time. You may have to say no to your day off and instead serve somebody else. Or say no to friends or no to family or no to children or husband or wife. Why? Because you're a soldier of Jesus Christ. You're on duty 24 hours a day. He is the master, the chief, the one who's in charge of you. He tells you what to do. Your parents say, hey, listen, you know, I know that you're in the Marines and stuff, but couldn't you just stay home a few more days on Christmas vacation? No, got to go. Why? Because your commander in chief is calling. You have to submit. Notice in the middle of verse 27, Jesus says, and come after me. Notice he he doesn't say, whoever does not carry his own cross. In other words, it's not just a cross bearing, but it is a cross bearing and following. It's not just acknowledging, you know, I probably should die to myself. I probably should make Jesus Lord of every area of our life. It's not just an acknowledging. It's also a following after. 
a following after. You know, I find myself, maybe you find this. Sometimes I delude myself into thinking that I'm obeying the Lord because I know what's right to do. All of a sudden you find yourself, you realize I'm not obeying here. I just know what's right to do. You know, it's, I, I find myself thinking, you know, I need to pray about somebody. Well, well, just pray about them. You know, pray. Don't just think about praying sometime. Pray about it. Why not do it right then? You can sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that because we know what's right and we know what's true. Therefore, we're following Jesus. No, that just knowing just makes us more accountable. It's the doing that is the following after. We sang it earlier. I didn't know we were even going to sing that song, but obviously there was providence. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. You hear that? All to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition. All I've sought and hoped and known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. That that needs to be it. That is, those are the words of somebody who has arrived at the discipleship place in their life. That has really been saved by grace. Look at the end of verse 27. And if they aren't willing to do that, if they aren't willing to die to self, you cannot be Jesus's disciple. You can't be a true Christian. You're not saved. Three, count the cost or perish. Picture in your mind here the faces of this great multitude. They probably look like your faces right now. Whoa. Um, Think about this. This huge multitude. I mean, they've sacrificed, right? They've left wherever they live. They're following Jesus to who knows where. They're on this big road, right? Jesus stops. The crowd hushes. There are several thousand of them. Jesus says, all you got to do is hate all your blood relations. All you got to do is hate your own soul. All you got to do is die to self, crucify yourself, or you can't be my disciple. Now, what do you think's going through their minds at this point? Surely they're thinking, whoa, if I did that, I would have to fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. And we can all fill in the blank. That we all know that if following Jesus meant that, then we're going to have to fill in the blank. And we're going to have to leave, forsake, give up, whatever it is to follow Jesus. And Jesus knows this. Look at verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You know, your friends see you clearing a lot. And you tell everybody in town, I'm building a tower. I'm building a tower in the corner of my field so I can watch over my property. They see you clear the lot and dig these trenches. Big foundation stones are brought in. You set them in place. And and then pretty soon construction stops and workers disappear. And you're wondering, yeah, you must be, you know, getting some more materials. And the materials never come. And the weeds grow back. And the dust blows in. And pretty soon your friends are walking by and they look at your tower And they go, oh, there's so-and-so's 
tower that he built. <laughs> and they mock you. Why? Because they all know you started to build and were what? Unable to finish because you didn't consider the cost. If that isn't enough, look at verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another in battle, another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation to ask for terms for peace. I mean, going to battle is a little different than building a tower. Both of these little illustrations, these parables here, both teach the necessity of counting the cost. But listen... Starting a tower, building a tower is no big deal. I mean, if you even started early and you weren't able to finish and you didn't have the money because you didn't count the cost, I mean, you'd have a foundation and people would laugh and that's all you'd have to pay. This is a whole different thing. This king has somebody coming against him and battle is a life or death situation. He has to decide right now and make a thorough calculation. The other Side has twice as many men, twice as many cavalry, twice as much artillery, and he needs to decide whether he's going to go to battle with bombs and bullets or whether he's going to send a delegation of try to get peace with words instead. Of course, the latter is probably what he would choose. But the whole point here is that if he went into battle and he didn't count the cost, it would be disastrous disastrous and so it is with those who go through this life merely following jesus physically but not spiritually oh i'll come to church i'll give some money i'll do a few little things and tell people i'm a christian and that's it those are like the people on the road those are like the people on the road i've known people who came to church who were very excited for a time You know, I actually thought they were saved. They had me fooled. They were even baptized. They gave great testimony and told of how God opened their eyes and delivered them from sin. And they're excited and they're involved. And it seems like they're everywhere in the church for a while. And everybody knows them. And pretty soon they show up less and less. And pretty soon a year goes by. Have you seen someone? I haven't seen him in a long time. Yeah, he dropped his membership six months ago. They're like Judas. And think about Judas. Judas lived with Jesus for three years. Saw him do all the miracles, heard him teach and preach, saw all of that. And then what did he do? He sold him out. He betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. The Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver was more important to Judas than Jesus. What does that tell you about Judas? He loved money. He loved a little money more than Christ. Think about Demas. Demas, the disciple, traveling companion and co-minister with the apostle Paul. Mentioned in Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24. He sends his greetings with Paul to different churches when Paul writes letters. I mean, you think this guy's squared away. 
He's with the Apostle Paul. He's got all the knowledge. He's gone through all this ministry. He's seen all these things happen. Surely this guy's squared away. But what does Paul say when he's dying, when he's in the Mamertine prison, when he's about to be executed, and he, he writes the short book of 2 Timothy and sends it off to Timothy, who's at Ephesus. He writes this in 2 Timothy 4.10. These are some of the last words he ever penned before he died. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica oh Demas realized you know what this Christianity thing is getting too hot too many Christians are being persecuted the apostle Paul is going to die for his faith what am I doing here I need to go back to my Lord the world and its pleasures and so he leaves Paul and blends back into the world and its pleasures only to lose everything in the end. You remember the seed, two kinds of seed in the parable of the soils, the seed sown among the weeds and the rocky soil. Both of those seeds seem to sprout up and they're doing really good and they seem to have promise. And then what happens? The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, um, persecution, choke it out so that it becomes unfruitful. They never bear a single bit of fruit. Like Demas, there are those who have departed, having loved this present world more than Christ. And sometimes you run into them around town. You know, I'll see them, and I know they used to go to Calvary, and I know they were excited for a time, and I know they fell back and fell away and fell into their sin or whatever. And they're always kind of nervous. You know, they talk to you in nervous tones, and their eyes kind of dart back and forth, and they won't look you in the face, and they've always got to be going somewhere when you run into them. They're like Lot's wife. They looked back. Being a disciple means first counting the cost. And then being willing to pay the bill. Of whatever it takes to follow Jesus. Four. We need to give up all or perish. Jesus has gone after relationships. Every bud relation and your own soul. Give it up. Count the cost. Not only that, look at verse 33. So then none of you who can be my disciple does not give up all his own possessions. Oh, yeah. I want everything you have to. The phrase give up means to renounce, to take leave of, to say goodbye to Jesus saying, if you want to be my disciple, you got to kiss everything goodbye. And this is a terrifying phrase. If you're an American. And you've never been on a missions trip to a third world country. You haven't seen people living in little tin shacks with dirt floors and no water and no electricity. You haven't really come to grips with just how blessed and rich and spoiled you are. You go into a grocery store and there's little packages of things and brown wrappers and that's their supermarket. And Jesus says, I want you to be willing to walk away from your house to live in that small apartment or tin shack. I want you to be willing to lose your car and take the bus or walk. I want you to be willing to give up those antiques and those knickknacks and heirlooms and things destined to perish if I want to use them. If you don't want to do that, you can't be my disciple. And now Jesus isn't saying, listen, I want you to take a vow of poverty. You know, let's all leave here today, give away everything and go live in the gutter with each other. 
He's not saying that. He's saying you need to be willing to take everything you have and put it on the altar of sacrifice to Christ. And if he wants to use it, to let him take it, to let him take it. I think one of the, the greatest and probably one of the most convicting texts on this is Hebrews 10:34, where the author of Hebrews praises his Hebrew readers. And he says this, for you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Think about that. When. The author of Hebrews is writing to his readers. He says, I know some of you have lost everything because you followed Christ. Some of you have had all of your possessions plundered. You are dirt poor. But you know what's amazing is he praises them because though they were Christians and had lost everything for the cause of Christ, they visited their friends who were in prison because they were Christians. Now that takes some courage. To know that Christians are being persecuted, to know they're being thrown into prison, to be a Christian yourself and to go visit somebody who is in prison for the very thing you are outside of prison, that takes faith and courage. That's exactly what they were doing. They were willing to risk imprisonment for the cause of Christ and to be an encouragement to those who had already been in prison so they could have a future glory in heaven with Christ. I mean, let's just say that things in America continue like they're going. And let's just say that Christianity is more and more persecuted. You can pretty much be any religion you want except Christianity. Because we're dangerous. We're narrow-minded. We're homophobic or alcoholophobic or immorality phobic or whatever you want to call it. We're, we've got so many phobias that we're trying to destroy other people. We actually believe in disciplining our children and all this is bad and evil. And soon it's determined that Christians are a nuisance society and they need to be getting, gotten rid of. And so we begin to fall prey to evil men. And. One of the reasons we fall prey to them is they want our stuff. They want our car, our house, the money in our bank account. So they swindle us. They rob us by force, whatever it is. They just plunder us. And let's just say at the end of all this, there you are on the street. Only with the clothes on your back and not very good clothes at that. You want to work, but no one will hire you because you're a Christian. Well, that's what happened to these Hebrew believers. And what's amazing is, is that little phrase, and they joyfully accepted it. Joyfully accepted being plundered and imprisoned for Christ. You may be thinking to yourself, I'm glad we don't live in those times. Yes, we do. In countries where Muslims, where Hindus or communists are still in control. Christians are suffering the exact same thing today in different parts of the world. If you don't know that, you need to quit reading just the liberal news. You know, get Voice of the Martyrs or whatever. Um, Listen 
to what's really happening as people are losing all to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be his disciple. Those who are not willing to have that cannot be his disciple, Jesus says. Fifth, make an impact or perish. Look at verse 34. Therefore, salt is good, but even salt, if it has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? You know, salt's great because you season food with it. It makes food taste better. And uh, if you're on one of those special high blood pressure diets, you wish you could season your food so it tastes better. Oh, but that's good. And salt also preserves. So salt has these two key functions. But their salt was different than our salt because their salt was taken uh, a lot of times from around the southern end of the Dead Sea where the very salty waters of the Dead Sea kind of leach out and the salt kind of rises to the top and it's very crystalline and sparkly and white. I mean, you can see it. The problem is when you go down there to collect salt, you know, you can't really tell by looking at it if it's pure or not. And since the trip down to the southern end of the Dead Sea was, you know, some 20 plus miles, it would probably um, take you, you know, two days at least walking in the hot sun, probably three days. It's very hot down there, very arid. Nothing grows because of all the salt and alkali. And you gather all of this salt up and carry it back to use. The problem is salt kind of attracts moisture to itself. And so over the course of time, if you tried to store a lot of salt, the salts would leach out and leave you this gypsum alkaline powder. It would be salt that had, quote, lost its saltiness. And there was no way to introduce salt back into that. You wouldn't really want to. So what do you do with this salt that has lost its saltiness? Well, you don't want to put it in the soil or put it in the manure pile to till into the garden because it actually ruins the soil. So it's really worthless for anything but for road base. So you just throw it outside your house to be trampled underfoot. Now, what's really interesting is this phrase becomes tasteless. That's how the New American Standard Bible has it or has lost its taste or has lost its flavor as the New King James or the English Standard Version has it. The Greek literally reads has become moronic. Now, think about that. Have you ever like picked up your salt shaker and said, you moron? (laughs) Think about that. You're so foolish. And we think, well, why would Jesus speak of salt that way? Salt isn't either stupid or foolish or wise. What are you talking about? Remember, he's using salt here to represent people. And people are foolish and stupid and moronic. They do things that are very unwise They fail to impact the world for Christ. They're created to give God glory. They're created to live for God, to display God, to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That's what they're created for. We're all created for that purpose. And if you're not serving that purpose, it's stupid. It's foolish. It's moronic. You are like salt that has lost its saltiness. Look at verse 35. It is useless either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown out. I mean, once you've just become gypsum and alkali, you don't want to put that on your food or your garden or anything else. You just pitch it. People are not letting their light shine before men who are no longer the salt of the earth, who are like the barren fig tree that was planted that we learned about earlier in Luke that was planted in the, the vineyard but never produced figs. 
It's worthless. Why would you have a fig tree that produced no figs? Why would you have salt that produced no saltiness? You would cut down the tree. You would throw out the salt. Why? Because it's worthless. That's the whole point. There comes a time in your life when you need to come to Jesus. You need to follow after Christ. There's a fork in the road. You're going to follow Jesus or you're going to follow the world. You're going to follow Jesus. You're going to follow your wife, your husband, your sister, your brother, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever it is. Who are you going to follow? Will it be Jesus or someone else? Will it be Jesus or something else? And if you choose the wrong way, Jesus says, moron, stupid, fool. And then at the very end, look at verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear what? Here, if you don't give Jesus preference over all other relationships, you cannot be his disciple. Hear that if you're unwilling to die to self, to live for Christ, you cannot be his disciple. Hear that you must count the cost before coming to Jesus or you'll end up like Demas or Judas. Hear that if you are not willing to give up all you have and not merely claim to be a Christian, but to pick up your cross and follow after Jesus, to be salt that actually makes an impact on the world, light that shines in the world, you cannot be his disciple. And you're just like the multitude that's following Jesus. Jesus is eternally serious in this text. And I'm sure all of that multitude was sitting there going, wow. Just like some of you are thinking right now. Wow. And you may be thinking to your life, listen, I'm still a sinner. Jesus is not talking about becoming sinless. He's talking about coming to the place in your life where you're willing to give up all to follow Jesus. Every Christian who actually gets saved says, I am... You, Lord, whatever you want from me, I will do it. It doesn't mean they become instantly sanctified. The rest of our life, we're battling, trying to conform to the commitment we've made to follow Jesus. I mean, you know, let's say you're out and about and you, know, you see one of those people with those little mongrel dogs, those little energetic, ill-trained dogs, and it's on the leash. You know what I'm talking about. The one that you see coming down the sidewalk and you want to like cross over because of the, you know, it's just all over. And the dog's running around. It's in the bushes getting tangled. It's wrapping itself around the pole. It's running backwards. It's running forwards. But what happens? By a miracle. The owner, the master gets that dog down that straight sidewalk, doesn't he? That's how it is being a Christian. A true disciple. You commit. Okay, Lord, I want to go down the straight sidewalk. And then you run off into the bushes and wrap yourself around the pole. And you run backwards and run forward. You're the whole, your whole life. You're just, you're all over the place. And God has the leash of grace around your neck. And he's going, come here. He keeps reeling you in. All right, down this way. Reel in, down this way. Reel in, down this way. Your whole life. We're not talking about sinless perfection. If you're sitting out there thinking, well, I'm not sinless, so I can't be disciple. Don't think that. What we're talking about is overall trajectory. What is the course of your life? Who are you trying to submit to? 
Are you farther down the sidewalk than you were when you supposedly first got saved? If you're just wrapped in the brush, you can't be one of his. If you're permanently entangled around the pole, you can't be one of his. If you're running in the wrong direction, you're not his. But if you see some progression there, if God's grace and mercy has you and he's taking you from one glory to the next and he's perfecting what he started in you, then praise God. You know, there's two primary ways to look in this text. Whenever I come to a text like this, I usually begin with some disclaimers, some exceptions, some um, explanations, because I don't want you to all sit there and feel uncomfortable like I'm preaching work salvation because I'm not. But then I thought to myself, you know, Jesus didn't do that. I mean, I even gave you explanations. I didn't say you just need to hate everybody you love and then continue on. At least I explained it. Okay. (laughs) But Jesus didn't. Now, why would Jesus say all of these things that are so forceful and so hard one after another, after another, after another, and not explain anything and not explain anything after that? And then keep walking down the road. This is why. Because all those people who are following Jesus thought that they were going to make it to heaven because they were on the road. And they were Jews. And they were the people of Abraham. And of course they were going to heaven. That was the prevailing thought. Jesus wants them to know. Heritage doesn't save you. Abraham doesn't save you. Following behind me, longing to see me do miracles and to feed thousands and to cast out demons and heal the sick and say amazing things and refute the religious leaders, that doesn't save you. There's only one thing that saves you. And so Jesus is not talking about earning your salvation. He's not saying you have to hate your relations and die to self and give up your possessions and count the cost and be salt that's salty. And if you don't do these things, you can't earn your salvation. That would be heresy. That would be salvation by works. He's not describing how to become a Christian. He's describing what a Christian is and does as the normal pattern and trajectory of their life. Now, why would he say that? So that those multitudes and so that we who are here today who look at our life and say, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, will stop and say, I need Jesus. That's why. I need to be saved by grace. I need to believe that he died on the cross for me, that he shed his blood for me, that he was buried for me and rose again on the third day for me. And that if I place my faith in him, he will save me. He will grab onto me. He will put the leash of grace around my neck and drag me down the straight and narrow. That's why he's saying it. He's trying to bring us all to a place of self-examination. So we realize this is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means. And if we look at our lives and say, that's, that's not it. That's not it. That, that's not me. Then we'll say, then I must need Jesus. I must believe in Jesus and trust him by faith. That's the whole message here. He wants to 
wants us all to feel the weight of discipleship in order that we evaluate our lives. Because there's so many people in so many churches and so many cultures around the world who think they're saved but are not. And so Jesus says all these shocking things. And you know what? There are some here today who have walked away for some pretty cushy jobs because they had to follow Jesus. Some here today who walked away for some incredible money and business deals because they had to follow Jesus. Some here today whose husbands or wives or mothers or fathers or parents are angry at them because they're choosing to follow Jesus. And you know what I'm talking about. You're going, I've done that a little. I've suffered a little. That's it. That's it. But if you look at your life and say, you know what? I, that's not me. That's not me. I'm not following Jesus. I'm not giving Jesus my all. I'm not, he's not Lord of my life. Yeah, I come to church. Yeah, I put some money in the plate. Yeah, I sometimes serve and rarely read my Bible, but I do a little. You're just deluded. You know, Jesus said in Luke 14, 24, which is the passage right before this one. Remember, he's invited into the Pharisee's house and and there's all these other scribes and Pharisees there. And he tells them a parable about the great dinner feast. And at the end, he says this in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. He's trying to get all these religious leaders to know you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven until you come to grips with me. It's the same thing he's doing here, but now to the multitude. It's the same thing as saying none of you can be my disciple who is not willing to do this. So that they all go, well, then I need saved because I'm not doing that. It's not that doing that saves you. It's that grace makes you like that. And if a cold chill is running up your spine right now and you're thinking, man, this is, you're, you're scaring me. You're making me feel like I'm not saved. I hope so. Get saved again if you need to. You know, some people say, you know, I've prayed so many times to receive guys. Good. There's nothing wrong with that. They keep praying. What's bad is, is if you're not saved and you won't come to grips with Christ. What's bad is, is when you keep living in delusion or you know you're not saved and yet you won't do anything about it because your pride, because of your love of the world, your love of sin, your love of your job, your hobby or whatever it is. And that keeps you from Christ. Don't do that. Whatever you do, do not do that. The whole text here is this huge bludgeoning of hard demands, like five blows with a hammer. So we'll all stop and say, okay, where am I at anyways with the Lord? Is your cry, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling? Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die, or something else. Like, I'm a pretty good person. I've never robbed anybody. I've never, you know, I'm not an axe murderer. Not yet, anyways. Does your faith believe there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains? And you're thinking, that's me. I've jumped in. Listen, if you've walked away from addictions, we have people here who are just so hopelessly 
addicted to drugs and alcohol and pornography and things that you would just think there's no hope for that person. Now they're, they're clean. Why? Because of Christ. Because they place their faith in Christ and Christ's grace is sufficient for them. You know, people, I don't even like the addiction terms. Everybody goes, well, you know, so-and-so is addicted to whatever. It's like everybody's addicted to sin before they come to Christ. We're all ex-addicts. Somebody comes to me, well, you know, Pastor Hughes, I need to tell you. It's like, you know, I'm a priest. And I need to confess. And, okay, go ahead and tell me what you did. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they kind of look at me like, is this going to shock you? Shock me, pal. Listen, I'm worse than you are. We, this, the whole church is full of ex whatevers and then those who are still enslaved to it because they haven't come to Christ. That's it. Those are the two. You have been saved by grace through faith to walk in newness of life or you have not. You are either a new creature in Christ. Now it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you and the life that you now live. You live by faith in the son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you or not. And so is your cry now, Jesus, I, my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee destitute, despised, forsaken thou from hence my all shall be or not. If you want it really simply, you can have Jade Samus's words, but we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joys he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, but there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. That's it. That's that's the message Jesus has in this text. All this bludgeoning is to shock them out of their complacency to make them look at their lives and say, do I know Christ or not? Am I on the path or not? And if they're not to get on the path which is by believing in Jesus and trusting in what he did to save you. If you're out there this morning and you don't know Christ, I'm going to pray right now. You're going to have an opportunity right now to get on the straight and narrow and to get the leash of grace around your neck. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this great passage, which though very hard and very demanding, is yet also very clear. We all need to look at our lives. We all need to ask ourselves if we have been willing to forsake all. Are we those who have denied ourselves, taken up our cross? Are those who have counted the cost, those who are making an impact in this world, are salt and light? Not as much as we should be, but we want to. And we're working on it by your grace. Father, if there's some here, and I know there are, who don't know you, who have never saw themselves as foul and flying to the fountain of Christ so that they might be washed in his blood, and have never laid all on the altar in order to trust and obey, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would move, that you would grant them the repentance they need to turn from their sin, to embrace Jesus Christ, to believe in him, to trust in him alone for salvation, and that doing that, you would give them great peace and comfort. And for the rest of us, may we leave here today 
remembering what Jesus' gospel is. How Jesus proclaimed the truth to those who are in need. And may we do likewise as we seek to be salt and light in this world. And Father, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.